You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. We're going to have another look at the Sixth Commandment this afternoon from a different angle this time. And to that end, we're going to read, first of all, from the Old Testament, the book of Job, chapter 10, the verses 1 to 12, and thereafter our New Testament reading from Romans 13, 1 to 7. Job 10, the verses 1 to 12. I loathe my very life. Therefore, I will give free rein to my complaint and speak out in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me, but tell me what charges you have against me. Does it please you to oppress me? to spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the schemes of the wicked? Do you have eyes of flesh? Do you see as a mortal sees? Are your days like those of a mortal or your years like those of a man? That you must search out my faults and probe after my sin, though you know that I am not guilty and that no one can rescue me from your hand? Your hands shaped me and made me. Will you now turn and destroy me? Remember that you molded me like clay. Will you now turn me to dust again? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese, clothe me with skin and flesh, and knit me together with bones and sinews? You gave me life. And showed me kindness, and in your providence watched over my spirit. Thus far what Job writes, and then we turn to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 13. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. And therefore it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. I preach to you this afternoon from the word of our God as the church summarizes and confesses this in Lord's Day 40. And draw your particular attention to question and answer 105 since we dealt with the entire commandment last Sunday. What does God require in the Sixth Commandment? I am not to dishonor, hate, injure, or kill my neighbor by thoughts, words, or gestures, and much less by deeds, whether personally or through another. 
Rather, I am to put away all desire of revenge. Moreover, I am not to harm or recklessly endanger myself. Therefore, also the government bears the sword to prevent murder. And as well, I draw your attention to 107. Is it enough then that we do not kill our neighbor in any such way? No, when God condemns envy, hatred, and anger, he commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness toward him, to protect him from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, last Sunday afternoon we turned our attention to Lord's Day 40 and to its explanation of the Sixth Commandment. But then as we did so, some of you may have felt that something was not quite right here. And over time you develop this nagging question, what kind of a question? Well, it's this. Does the Heidelberg Catechism contradict itself in Lord's Day 40? Notice, first of all, in answer 105, it states, I am not to dishonor, hate, injure, or kill my neighbor by thoughts, words, or gestures, and much less by deeds, whether personally or through another. Rather, I am to put away all desire of revenge. So murder is out, absolutely irrevocably out. But then in the second part of answer 105, it suddenly states, therefore also the government bears the sword to prevent murder. So while murder is out, the government can still use the sword. In short, the government can kill. It can resort to capital punishment. Now, the question is, do these two things fit together? Do they belong together in one and the same answer of the Heidelberg Catechism? Is it not comparable to saying no person can take the life of his neighbor, but the government can do this? Does forbidding murder not also mean forbidding capital punishment? Is it not so that taking human life is always wrong, and then it doesn't matter if it is done by a private individual or by a civil government. Beloved, let's consider those issues together this afternoon along with other related matters. I preach to you on the theme, Contradiction in the Commandment, and we're going to look at life preserved, life protected, and finally life promoted. Well, beloved, when it comes to this sixth commandment of God's law, it is basic and fundamental that we realize that this commandment aims at the preservation of human life. That is its overall thrust and its general intent. And you can prove that, for example, if you want, by going back to Genesis 9, It's that passage which describes what happens after the great flood. In it, Noah and his sons are commanded to be fruitful and to fill the earth. And at the same time, nothing is going to stand in their way, for the fear of them will be, it says, on all creatures. In addition, there is food for them everywhere. So you can say that man receives the command, the power, as well as the opportunity to increase in number. 
Uh, there's more. For God also surrounds man with a special kind of safeguard. You may notice reference is made to his life blood. It's specifically said by him that for your life blood, I will surely demand an accounting. In other words, the murder of man shall not and must not go unpunished. Twice in these few verses, God says, I will demand an accounting. And why does he say that? Well, it says, for in the image of God has God made man. Here we're back again to the image, to the manner in which God made man in the beginning. God has made him his image, his reflection, his likeness. God has endowed him with what we might even call divine qualities and divine offices. And so Genesis 9 would have us conclude that the life of man, our life as people, is special. It's special because of the manner in which the Lord God has made each and every one of us. Well, beloved, if something is special, and especially if God himself says it is special, what do we do with it? Well, you naturally go out of your way to care for it wherever and whenever you can. As individuals, you treat your neighbor then as someone who is special. And as governments, you enact laws that preserve, enhance, and advance human life. So is that's what's happening today. Is it evident that we as individuals and governments are doing whatever we can to preserve human life and existence and blessing? Sadly, it has to be said that the record is rather spotty and selective. And what do I mean? Well, take, for example, the province of British Columbia as an example, and what applies to B.C. may apply to many other provinces and American states as well. In B.C., we have a special ministry called the Ministry of Children and Family Development. And we also have a special watchdog for this department to make sure that it does a good job called the Independent Representative for Children and youth. In short, you can say that children in our province are and receive special care and attention. And indeed, the provincial government is to be applauded for its efforts. Only then, before we stand up and start clapping, we need to look further afield and see that while children today are deemed special, this does not extend to the unborn. Having an abortion in Canada is not covered by the criminal code and thus cannot be punished. And at the same time, going by the most recent comments of our Prime Minister, this is not going to change any time soon. In Canada, sorry to say, it will remain open season on the unborn. And that, beloved, can be nothing else than a grave injustice in our society and a mighty offense to the Lord 
our God. A moment ago, we read from Job chapter 10, and there Job confesses very openly and honestly, your hands shaped me and made me. Did you not pour me out like milk, curdle me like cheese, clothe me with skin and flesh, knit me together with bones and sinews? You gave me life. As a word, Job is reflecting upon the time in his mother's womb. And he sees God's creative hand in it everywhere. God is the author and the source of his life. Yes, and David agrees. He says in Psalm 139 that his God, about his God, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And he adds that his frame was not hidden from God. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. David says God is the great knitter, the great embroiderer, the great weaver. Clearly our life comes from him. Yes, and because of that, it needs to be preserved as much as possible. It needs to be preserved from conception to grave. It needs to be championed as unique, special, and extraordinary at all of its stages of life. And then, of course, I realize that this will immediately bring about a reaction. What about unwanted pregnancies? What about rape? What about the life of the mother? Now, this is not the time and the place to deal with all of those questions, except to say as a general comment that the whole matter of human sexuality and conception has become an utterly, solely, exclusively humanistic affair today. God is not even in the picture. His role is not considered anywhere. The source of life is forgotten. Evolution has replaced him. And what that really means is that life is at bottom nothing more than chance or accident. And what about the unborn? Is there still any sense out there that life is a gift is precious, is divinely given. It strikes me so often children are viewed as social liabilities or financial liabilities, or else they're a way to obtaining personal fulfillment. My biological clock is ticking and I need to have, I need to have this experience before it's too late. But where, oh where, is the sense that children are a heritage of the Lord? That children are a reward from Him. That blessed is the man or the woman who has his or her quiver full of them. And that one of life's greatest joys is to see your children's children. Human life, says the Scripture, is precious, and it's worth preserving. 
But then if human life is to be preserved from conception to grave, it also needs to be protected. And how do we protect human life? Well, you can say, of course, by heeding God's command. As well, we do it by the attitude we show to our neighbor. And we do it as well by enforcing certain laws and legal precepts. Such laws should protect the unborn and the young. Such laws, however, should also protect human life at whatever stage or particular juncture it may be. All human life, we would say, is special. Teenage life, adult life, mid-age life, even elderly life, it's all special. And that, too, is something that should be reflected in our laws. But is it so? There are a number of issues here. One has to do with the kind of sentences that are handed out for crimes committed. Today, it's often distressing and disturbing to see the light sentences that are handed down to people who take human life. You drive drunk, and you kill somebody, and you get a few years behind bars. Perhaps, just maybe. You beat your wife to death, shoot someone, kill a policeman, and what do you get? 25 years. Sometime. Let's see, an average lifespan is 75 to 80 years, so murdering my neighbor will cost me at most a third of my lifespan. Something wrong with that, isn't there? Doesn't it say a lot about the shifting values of human life? Doesn't it say a lot about our our justice system and how laws are so often interpreted and applied? Hasn't a a huge sense of arbitrariness crept into all of this? So what's the answer? Again, I would say to you, it goes back to biblical law and precept. What does God say? I would say Genesis 9, verse 6 again lays down a principle, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. In other words, God says to Noah and his family and to all mankind that the taking of human life is sometimes permitted. If one man sheds the blood of another man, then his life becomes forfeit. The principle here is that the only suitable punishment for murder is the life of the murderer. You take a life, and you lose your life. And now I realize, of course, that at this particular point, a lot of people start talking about deterrence. 
They say we need this law in order to prevent murder, to act as a deterrent to other people, to act as a source of prevention. But you know, beloved, that's not the primary thing here. God commands Noah to shed the blood of the blood shedder as a principle of justice. What flows or does not flow from it, that's secondary. The heart of the matter is, I made man so special in my image that one life taken requires another life. And you know, that's also the principle that you see worked out in the Old and in the New Testament. Nowhere does the Bible reveal how well or how often this happened, but it did operate. At first, in the Old Testament, the family was responsible for seeing to it that justice was done. Later on in Israel, God gave his people specific instructions relating to capital punishment. There's all that stuff, you know, about the kinsman redeemer, about the cities of refuge, about the elders in the gate, and about stoning. Terrible punishments are meted out for terrible crimes. And you can see that continued into the New Testament. We, we've read Romans 13 about the authorities and, and what do they bear? Paul says they bear the sword. And that really means, if you look at it in some detail, that the state does have a right to take life. They're God's servants, Paul says more than once. Capital punishment as such is not sin. It may be both a right as well as a duty. And that even goes, and look at the context, Paul is writing this letter to the believers in Rome, of all places. And he's telling the Romans, the Roman government bears the sword. The Roman government can tax you. The Roman government is my servant. Now, if he says that to a secular government then you have to say this kind of principle applies to all government. All governments have a duty, an intrinsic duty, to protect human life. But there is, of course, a problem here. And that is that so often the state does a lousy job of this, to say it bluntly. Now, Sunday afternoon, I started my sermon by using an illustration about an innocent black football player who was put to death by lethal injection. The illustration, by the way, and some of you caught it, comes from John Grisham's latest bestseller called The Confession. And in it, it's an interesting story, but in it, Grisham does a lot of special pleading. He's obviously opposed to the death penalty, at least the American variety. And he makes his case in a very emotional, even obvious, and slanted kind of manner. The problem is, however, is that he doesn't make it in a biblical manner. For while the Bible does call for capital punishment, there's something else we need to recognize, and that is that the Bible calls for it under special circumstances. What circumstances? There have to be 
at least two witnesses, two eyewitnesses to the crime. You might say Deuteronomy 17 verse 6 lays down the rule on the testimony of two or three witnesses, a man shall be put to death, but no man shall be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. A single witness is not enough. Circumstantial evidence is not enough. A signed confession is not enough. I dare say even DNA evidence, which we all seem to be in love with today, is not enough. Two flesh and blood people need to stand up in court under us and say this is what they actually saw with their eyes, heard with their ears, and can testify to. No hearsay. No I think or I believe. No prison informers. But rather, did you really, truly see him or her do this? And I would say to you, that's the bar of Old Testament justice. That's the bar of biblical justice. And if such a bar were used in Canada and the United States, many miscarriages of justice would have been avoided. Milgard, Truscott, Harper, and so forth would never have happened. Yes, so now all of that brings us back to Lord's Day 40. Is it really contradictory? Is it inconsistent to say, as the catechism does, therefore also the government bears the sword to prevent murder? I, for one, don't see any contradiction or inconsistency here. The overriding attempt and intent, and I'll say it again, of the sixth commandment is to protect human life. And such protection will only take place in that country where the government does not arbitrarily legislate away the power of the sword, but where it administers justice according to biblical norm and precept. But then, of course, beloved, we also need to remind ourselves at this juncture that there's more to this commandment than, of course, arguing or debating about abortion and capital punishment. The Catechism echoes the written Word of God as well as the incarnate Word, Jesus Christ, when it shows us in in answer 107 that this commandment is not just simply out there to be discussed and debated at arm's length. Well, once again, this is a commandment that also needs to function in here, in the hearts and lives of each and every one of us. And maybe the best way to see that, you know, i got to hang up about this kind of thing, but if you look at answer 107, there really are what I call the three, the message of the three Ps. 
You might wonder, where are the three P's in, in answer 107? Well, the first P, bear with me, is that here the catechism says about this commandment when it is applied personally that we are being pressed, pressed to love our neighbor as ourselves. Of course, that raises the question, just how well do you get along with the people around you? When you think of them, what kind of reaction wells up in your heart? Are the reactions of envy, hatred, and anger? Or is it the reaction of love? And notice the words of the catechism, do you love them, which of course reflects scripture, do you love them as much as you love yourself? You know, whether we admit it or not, we all are in love with ourselves. That's almost a basic fallen human fallacy or reality. We love ourselves. Usually it's us first. So the catechism is asking here, according to the scriptures, grudging love... Qualified love, stunted love will not do. You you need, if you want to keep this commandment, you need to love other people as much as you love yourself. So the first P is pressed to love. The second P is promoted, or prompted, I should say, prompted to show patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness. Now, that's, let's face it, easy to say and to read, but it's, it's hard. And why, we might even say, humanly speaking, it's impossible. Of course, I realize there are some people out there who are, it seems, innately lovable. But you know, there are a lot of people out there as well who are not very lovable at all. How in the world can you show them patience and peace and gentleness and mercy? You know, there's only one way, and that's again with all of these commandments, and that's with God's help. This this law of the Ten Commandments needs to be a law that is bathed in the work and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it needs to be a law that is constantly prayed about in reference to our Lord Jesus Christ. If you read the Gospels, you know right away there were no shortage of fools and the like in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he loved them all. He even died for a whole big bunch of fools. So you need to plead with the Spirit. And you need to keep on asking Him to prompt you to love others with patience and peace and gentleness. And that brings us, beloved, to the third P, which is all about being pushed to protect. The Catechism instructs us, protect him or her, from harm as much as we can. And you know, underneath that is the principle of you are your brother's 
or sister's keeper. If your brother or sister is acting outrageously or dangerously, don't pull your righteous robes around you and say, that's none of my business. Your neighbor and your neighbor's well-being is always and ever your business. If you don't understand that or are not applying this, then it's high time that you read and review the parable of the Good Samaritan. Scripture there and elsewhere is constantly pushing us to protect our neighbor. Yes, and then finally we come to the fourth P here in this answer, which has to do with being prodded to do good even to our enemies. In life, there are always people who don't like you for one reason or another. It's impossible to be popular with everyone everywhere all the time. There will come a time when someone will say nasty things about you or try to do a number on your reputation or take you for a ride, so to speak, and so forth. Such is reality, fallen, sinful, broken reality. You can't do anything about it. Or maybe you can. But you know that one day God will fix it for good. In the meantime, however, there is you. How do you handle your haters, despisers, and defamers? And again, beloved, take a page out of the book of your Savior. What does he do with those who curse him, slander him, slap him, malign him? He showers them with love. Why, he heard them, he helped them, he healed many of them. Even died for a lot of them. You see, Scripture says there's only one medicine that cures hate. And that's love. Love is the only way to counter hate. Try it. If you know that someone has it in for you, here's a little challenge. Ignore the hate and just show that person love unconditional, undeserved, unrestrained love. And that love will melt the heart. And so our Savior is once again the perfect example of someone who prods us to do good because he is good. So, beloved, I would say to you, do more than simply kick at the government when it comes to this commandment. Do more than simply debate the ethical aspects of this particular part of God's law. Also embrace the fact 
But here you're being pressed to love, prompted to show patience, pushed to protect, and prodded to do good, even to those who hate you. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.